Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I'll be your host. Now, I live a pretty ordinary life, but I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. If you're interested in what the Bible really means and how it can be applied to your everyday, perhaps ordinary life, then this podcast is for you. You see, I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind. It's a revelation about who he is and how we fit into the story he is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books, but with a unifying theme. God desires a relationship with us. So let's open the pages of God's Word together and discover what extraordinary truths He has for our lives. Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of the Bible for the Ordinary Life. Today, we are transitioning from Ephesians chapter 1 into Ephesians chapter 2. If you've been with me for the previous episodes of Ephesians, you know that this is a letter Paul wrote to a group of churches during the first century. He starts out with a heavy dose of theology about who God is and his choosing of believers. And then Paul establishes the truth of all that we as believers have been given by God. And finally, he shares with his audience the things he has been praying for them. Now, toward the end of what we define as chapter one, Paul begins to talk about who Jesus is, where Jesus is, and the power that Jesus has. And then in chapter two, Paul develops a comparison for believers between who they once were and who they now are, now that they've accepted Christ's salvation. So these verses lay an important foundation for our understanding of salvation. So let's get into today's text and discover what God has for us. Now I'm going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 18. It's right near the end of chapter 1, and it's part of Paul's prayer. But backing up to this helps us set the stage for our discussion of chapter 2. I'm reading today from the Christian Standard Bible. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Okay, so in these verses, we learn a little bit about who Jesus is, where Jesus is, and the power Jesus has. Let's tackle each of these ideas briefly. Who is Jesus? We actually see that answer first clearly defined in the verses prior, where Paul refers to him as, quote, our Lord Jesus Christ. And here, Paul clearly indicates that Jesus is risen. He is alive. Jesus is not just a character in a story. He's not just a nice guy who lived a long time ago and then died. Jesus is our Lord. And let's not lose the fact that he was dead and now alive. 
it's pretty foundational to our faith. And I know if you've been a believer for a long time, you might be thinking, why are we spending time on who Jesus is? If I'm listening to a podcast about the Bible, don't you think I know who Jesus is? Yes, yes, I do think you know. But let's commit ourselves to not losing the awe. Jesus, our Lord, is alive. Paul tells us here that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He used a supernatural power to do that. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus walked on earth for about 40 days after his resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven. His disciples actually watched him go from earth up into heaven. And Paul tells us here that Jesus is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Specifically, he mentions that he is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The question, where is Jesus, is very clearly answered here. Now, I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're driving. Maybe you're exercising. Maybe you're sitting in your favorite chair. But wherever you are right now, just pause in the moment and set your mind on the fact that Jesus is sitting at this very moment in heaven at the right hand of God. Our Lord is alive. He is far above every ruler, every authority, every power, every dominion, every title. He's there. Can you close your eyes and picture that? Well, if you're driving, don't close your eyes. <laughs> but seriously, it can be so easy sometimes to lose sight of the spiritual things we cannot see. We can't see Jesus's physical body, but he is alive and he is seated in the heavens. And with that position comes power. Paul tells us that God the Father has placed all things under Jesus' feet and has appointed Jesus to be the head of the church. So here we are down on earth, dealing with the physical, tangible things we can see, touch, hear. We're subjected to governments, authorities, parents, bosses at work, all kinds of things that are over us. People that tell us what to do, what not to do, when to do it, when not to do it, and on and on. But above all of that sits Jesus. And all those things, whether good or bad, rulers or powers or authorities, all of them are under his feet. So Jesus has eternal power over the things that have temporary power over us. Now that should give us a measure of comfort and peace. But it's not just that Jesus has a position of power over all things. He also has a manifestation of himself here on earth. Did you catch what it is when I read the verses? It's the church. Paul says Jesus was appointed to be the head of the church and the church is Jesus's body. The church is his fullness. So yes, physically, Jesus is seated right now in the heavens, positioned with ultimate power over all things. And yet, figuratively, he's also manifested here on earth through the church, which is his figurative body here on earth. Now, of course, we're mixing literal things with figurative imagery, but stay with me because this leads to a better understanding of our salvation as we move into chapter 2. 
let's put these pieces together just one more time. Okay, Jesus is literally alive. He's right now sitting in the heavens at the right hand of God the Father. We are literally down here on earth where we can only perceive the things our eyes, ears, and other senses can process. But as the church, we are also the body of Jesus in a figurative sense. We are to bring his characteristics, his love, and his grace to our physical world. And yes, we have rulers, authorities, and governments and powers we are subjected to right now. But ultimately, all of those things reside under Jesus' power and control. Whew, it's a lot to mull on. I know. But it's a foundation for what Paul establishes in chapter 2. So, let's keep going. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 next. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you had previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Okay, did you notice the shift in the subject of these verses? We started off today by focusing on who Jesus is, where Jesus is, and what power Jesus has. But now in these verses, Paul shifts the focus to his audience, the churches he originally was writing to, and to us. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's established Jesus' position, and now he's going to cover some important points about what happens to those who have become Jesus' followers. Now, I'd like to offer up what I call composition clues to help you better study the Bible for yourself. In these verses, we're going to use the clue of compare and contrast. Now, this is a new one in this series. I've mentioned using punctuation clues to help us see important things like lists or questions. And we've also looked at trigger words that clue us in that we have a cause and effect being explained. So another literary tool is to draw comparisons, which means to find similarities between things, or to show contrast which means to find the difference between things. In these verses, Paul clearly contrasts what life is like before salvation and what life is like after. Now, the key to this contrast is in verse 4, where he says the two little words, but God. So, verses 1 through 3 are going to be a description of who we were before God intervened. And verses 4 through 10 are a contrast to those and describe who we are after God intervenes. So let's take a look at some specifics. 
Verse 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I think it's interesting that Paul uses two words here. He doesn't just say we were dead in our trespasses or we were dead in our sins. No, he wants to make sure he fully covers it all. All the things we did wrong, whether we meant to or not, are grouped up in these words. It's because of those things, those trespasses and sins, that we were spiritually dead. It's a simple fact. Sin leads to death. Now that's a message the Bible teaches from Genesis through Revelation. Sin leads to death. Now, the contrast. Let's skip to verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead, but now we are alive. And why the change? But God. But God, who is rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, made us alive. Now, don't move too quickly over those words. God made us alive. There is nothing we did to bring ourselves from death to life. This foundational truth is critical for Jesus' followers to truly understand. Being good enough isn't enough. It's only God. God's mercy. God's love. God made us alive. In chapter 1, Paul established that Jesus died and it was God the Father who brought him to life. That same power, that supernatural, unexplainable power, is what takes our position of death and turns it into life. Okay, so contrast number one, we were dead, but God, now we are alive. Let's look at the second thing Paul says. Back to verse 1 and 2, which reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. How did we live? According to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air. According to the spirit now working in the disobedient. Okay, so what does all of that mean? So it actually means that before God intervened, we lived according to the ways of Satan. Now, I don't mean to sound like terribly churchy and preachy when I say that or use that name. And you might feel uncomfortable to think that before becoming a believer in Jesus, you lived by Satan's ways. But let's think about what Satan represents. Often, when I hear that name, I picture a pretty scary looking guy with horns, a pitchfork, a spike tail, he's red, and he's standing in a fiery dark pit, right? It's an image that I think many of us associate with the name Satan. But let's change the name to be more descriptive of his actual role. The word Satan in Hebrew is literally translated adversary. He is God's opponent, and he does whatever it takes to keep us from God. His most used tactic is deception. So let's call him the chief deceiver. Think about this. If anyone is not following Jesus and putting their faith in his life and death and resurrection, they are being deceived and therefore following the chief deceiver. He is the one who is influencing the world. He is the prince of the air. He is the ruler of the disobedient. If you aren't following Christ, then you are following his adversary, the chief deceiver. Now Paul goes on in verse 3 and says, 
We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So before God intervened, Paul recognized and explained that they all lived like unbelievers, carrying out these sinful desires within their flesh, because they, like us, before salvation, were under the power of the adversary, the chief deceiver. But God. Now, let's contrast this with what happens when God intervenes. Verse 6 says, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. No longer are we living in our fleshly desires, carrying out those sinful desires of our flesh and being influenced by the chief deceiver. No, we are raised up and seated in the heavens with Christ Jesus. Now, Okay, I realize at this point we have to stop and talk figuratively again because a few minutes ago we thought about where we were literally right now. So like I'm actually sitting in my home office recording this podcast, which is located in the state of Florida. I'm not in the heavenlies physically, and you aren't either. You're, well, wherever it is you are. And Jesus is right now literally seated in heaven. And we've grappled with the idea that the church is Jesus's figurative body and that we represent his characteristics here on earth in a figurative sense. So why does Paul switch to this figurative setting and say we're seated at the right hand of God when we're literally actually not? It's a spiritual location, not a current physical one. You see, we were spiritually dead, and now we're spiritually alive. We were spiritually following after the chief deceiver and living out our lives according to our spiritual internal cravings. But God, rich in his mercy and love, made us spiritually alive. He has a new position for us. It's to be seated in heaven with him. We aren't physically there yet, but spiritually we are. And one day we will also physically be there. So contrast number one was that we were dead, but God, now we are alive. Contrast number two, we were living under the chief deceiver, but God, now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Now there's one more contrast. In verse three, Paul says we were children of the wrath. The whole verse says this, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Hmm. But God, right? So let's contrast this with verse 5, which says these words, you are saved by grace. And later Paul says these words in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So before salvation, we were children of wrath. After salvation, we are children of grace, created for good works, and considered a workmanship of God himself. The contrast of who we were and who we are is striking. I am so thankful for those two words, but God. But I can't help and go back and ask the question, why? Why would God intervene? We were dead. 
We were following after his adversary. We were living according to our fleshly desires. But God, because of his rich mercy and great love. I don't know what you bring to this podcast and how you view God. But if your view of who God is does not include rich mercy and great love, can I encourage you to rethink your conception of God? Let's try this. Think about the most aggravating person in your life. Someone who just does things to irritate you, whether intentional or not. Or maybe just someone who rubs you the wrong way when you're around them. Now, how easy is it for you to love them? How easy is it to show mercy or lavish them with gifts and kindness? It's not easy at all, is it? They're annoying. And you really want them to get it together and just do the right thing or at least do the thing that's less annoying than the current thing. That mindset, that scenario, it's just a fraction of a glimpse of the situation here. We, we weren't just annoying to God. We had to be separated from him because of our sin. He literally could not have tolerated us in heaven with him in our previous state. But God and his love and his mercy, while we were still living in the flesh, following his adversary, but God made a way. He offered a gift of salvation to bring us into fellowship with him so that someday we could be seated in the heavenly realms alongside him. <laughs> what is this? This is love. This is mercy. And this goes far beyond trying to grin and bear the presence of someone who's annoying. This kind of love is, it's hard to even imagine. But I want you to try to. And I want you to practice thinking about this kind of love when you think about God. Do bad things still happen to good people? Sure. Does God sometimes answer no when we pray for yes? Yep, sometimes. Does it seem like evil people can get away with injustice while the people who choose to do the right thing always get punished? Yes. Yes, it can. But God still loves us more than we could ever truly comprehend. And that is the message Paul is giving to his readers and to us. He establishes Jesus' position and his power first. Remember, everything is under Jesus' feet. And then he establishes the contrast between who we were and what position we used to have versus who we are now and what position we now hold. All because of two little words. But God. So whatever you're facing, whether it's a prayer that hasn't been answered, a burden that seems too hard to carry, maybe it's a relationship that's broken or a dream that hasn't happened. You could be grappling with anger or resentment or bitterness or confusion or a concept of God that doesn't look like love and mercy at all. If it seems hopeless, if it seems more difficult than you have the strength for, if it seems like everything is against you, and I encourage you to remember these two words. But God, he can take death and turn it to life. He can take children of wrath and make them recipients of grace. He can take a life of sin and turn it into eternity with him. This week, as we go about the ordinary things of life, let's continue to find the ways that those two words, but God, can give us hope 
and strength and confidence in what is to come. We are alive, saved by grace, and seated in the heavens with Christ. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for the Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforttheordinarylife.com or connect with me on Instagram at Bible for the Ordinary Life.